Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, Matt Hammerstein, CEO of Barclays UK, joins Nikki Eggers, Head of Investments, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer, to discuss some of the ways that this latest crisis will change the ways that we live, work, and invest. Welcome to this week's Word on the Street, and I'm pleased to have Matt, our CEO for Barclays UK, join Will and I today. So Matt, without wanting to sound impertinent, you've been around the block a few times in this industry, both inside Barclays as a senior decision maker and also as an outsider looking in. Have you ever seen anything that compares to the current situation that we're facing? Well, um, thank you for that. That wasn't impertinent. I've got the distinct lack of hair to be able to back that statement up. Um, <laughs> the uh, I, I don't honestly think I have. The thing that people, I think, are most likely to compare this to is the financial crisis in 2008, 2009. And having lived at the heart of that, even in Barclays, um, I think this is so fundamentally different. It isn't really in any way comparable, um, not least of which because that was a financial crisis. So it started, if you will, on the broader financial markets and then bred into the real economy. And this is a healthcare crisis that is having a significant impact on how everybody lives their lives. And then that's going to ultimately bleed its way into the financial services sector as well. Um, when and how and to what extent, I think, is a big open question for everybody right now. But um, we're going to have to manage our way into that as time progresses. In this context, what data points are you finding most useful And how do you avoid being overwhelmed by so much information at the moment? How do you hear the signals through the noise, so to speak? Yeah, I think there have been four areas that we've tried to, as a leadership team of our business, sort of concentrate on um, for different reasons, which I'll try to come on to. So one, um, this is obviously, as I said a minute ago, had a big impact on the way people live their lives. And we've been paying a lot of attention to the data that we were able to see through how people are using their debit and credit cards to live their lives, how that's changed. And we've seen some incredibly significant changes, many of which are probably consistent with what you might expect. But in my view, when you stare at the data, it puts what's happening in pretty stark relief. So we've seen in the most recent week, for instance, total consumer spend across our credit and debit card base go down 35% year over year. If you then look in that at Um, the difference between what you might call essential spend, so things like groceries and pharmaceuticals, that's only down about 6%. Non-essential spend is down nearly 50%. And I've never seen, and then you have to put in perspective, that's happened in three weeks. So within three weeks, we've seen people cut their non-essential spend in half. Um, And again, that's consistent with sort of what you would expect as a consequence of social distancing and isolation and things of that sort. But again, that figure is just dramatic in terms of how quickly it's hit and just how far and wide ranging, if you will, that impact will be on on businesses right across the economy here and even beyond the UK. So we've been paying close attention to that to be able to get a signal as to how this has impacted people that we're trying to serve, both individuals and businesses. Two, um, this has clearly had a significant impact on our colleagues our, uh, who, who are here to help, whether that's serving customers and clients directly or the people that help enable them. And again, everybody is now um, broadly working from home other than those that need to be in branches to help continue to serve customers and clients. And some of our colleagues in contact centers where we've only um, recently got to a point where we've got the technology in place to allow them to work from home. So we're just in the midst of transitioning that. And again, whilst um, 
we've had a lot of flexibility in our workforce for a long time in terms of enabling people to work from home periodically. No one's worked from home permanently at this large scale ever, and so at least in our industry or our organization. So we've been keeping a finger on the pulse of how people are feeling as they as they do that. And as ever, you know, people right at the start of a crisis, there's a lot of energy and adrenaline just given the significance and the weight of it, particularly how this one hit. Um, but over time, you know, that starts to wear off and people start to get uh, understandably a bit grumpy and a bit frustrated because things don't work the way that they would want them to. And even some of the technology that supports them um, may not necessarily work as smoothly as they would like. So keeping a finger on the pulse of data related to how colleagues are feeling has been critically important for that reason. Third, there have been some very specific things that we've needed to do, given what we've observed um, across our customer base and seen in, uh, across the, the whole of the economy to, to support customers and clients. So on the individual side, that's been creating uh, the capability for what are so-called payment holidays, um, effectively to create some breathing space. So as people adjust to new circumstances and government schemes take time to land, that's allowing um, that breathing space uh, for that adjustment to take place, hopefully. And then on the business side, of course, there's the coronavirus business interruption loan scheme that the government has put in place. And we've been paying a lot of attention to the data there in terms of the businesses that are in, in urgent need of support through that scheme. And again, our own operational capability to be able to deliver it, recognizing that we've had to stand up to do all that capability at the same time that we were adjusting our own workforce to be working from home. So there's um, some inherent complexity in that, and we needed to stare at the data to be able to understand that. And then fourth, you know, I say the job of someone in my position is to not just manage through all three of those things, but then to, when we can and as much as we can, turn an eye towards where could this all go next? So what is living through the crisis as individuals, as a business, and then generally as society going to look and feel like? And therefore, um, what, what do we need to start doing now to get ready for whatever comes next? And then ultimately, how do we create an opportunity, if you will, in a competitive context to, to turn this um, crisis into something that's more strategically enabling us to transform the business in the way that we had originally intended to do. And I think you know, the business that you and Will are a part of are living proof of that. And we heard from Catherine McGraw, our head of channels, on a recent Word on the Street, that she's seeing a lot of change both in how customers access our various services and how we provide them as a result. Are there any of these changes that you think could be permanent? Yeah, I, I certainly think there could be. It's probably too early to tell, particularly in a banking context, um, how many of them could be um, even semi-permanent, let alone permanent. But if I step beyond banking, you know, the, the, what we've seen people uh, very clearly needing to do is a consequence of some of the move, mobility restrictions the government's had to put in place is dramatically shift sort of how they shop, even for things as, as essential as groceries. I talked a little bit about spending patterns earlier. We've seen in the data that we look at, online grocery sales are up uh, nearly 90% year on year. And again, you might expect that just given circumstances. But again, imagine if you're in one of those businesses, and um, I think my family is a user of one of them, um, you know, they've had uh, an unbelievably dramatic increase in demand for their services um, in a very, very short period of time. And so long as they get their service model right, um, some of them are, some of them may not be, my expectation is that will um, lead a number of people to recognize that um, that's something that they couldn't should have been doing uh, maybe even before the crisis, and therefore it has a strong chance to become permanent. And I think you're seeing similar things in terms of trends that were here pre-crisis now accelerating in terms of even 
within the, the non-essential spend that people are still doing um, a significant shift uh, naturally given, um, again, restrictions on mobility to people using um, electronic means to make those purchases. And, and again, you, you see that in some of the data that's shared externally around, you know, Amazon in the U.S. hired 150,000 people in the last month, and they've just back out this week saying they need 100,000 more. And I think that's a, a very significant sort of representation or specific representation of what we're seeing more generally in the way in which people are changing their behaviors. And while some of that may drift back into offline uh, sort of retail channels uh, post-crisis, I suspect uh, very little of it will, because uh, once people get used to doing it in an online context, it, the ease, the simplicity, and the sort of the variety they have access to becomes hard to resist. In banking, I think the thing that, um, to, to a certain degree, and sort of the main part of what we do as a bank, people have actually sort of put large parts of their lives on hold, hence some of the changes in spending that I alluded to earlier. We see that in the consumer research we do. This came at them so suddenly and changed their circumstances so suddenly they've been sort of shell-shocked. And as a consequence of that, they've sort of put their financial lives on hold unless they had a very urgent need that they needed to address immediately. Um, and so where we've seen people change their behaviors, clearly they can't go into branches as much as they used to, either because of, um, you know, uh, closures that we've had to make because of staff sickness um, or uh, or other issues uh, related to that. Um or they've just chosen because of their own circumstances to self-isolate uh, themselves. And so therefore, we've seen a huge surge in demand for telephony services. And in fact, re relative to say, our digital channels, we've certainly seen an, an increase in use of our digital channels, but the increase of our telephony channels has been significantly more than, than our digital channels so far. And my expectation is, is that, or interpretation of that, is that people are at the moment judging this to be a temporary phenomena and moving from you know, predominantly using a physical branch channel to going digital on the app is a big move for them in banking terms because they think of their money differently maybe than they do their general spending habits. Um, so, you know, I suspect for banking generally, the, the longer this goes on, the more we'll see people, I suspect, being willing to make it through those significant jumps in behavior. And once they do, once they cross that bridge and become more accustomed to and at ease to using those digital channels, certainly, again, pre-crisis, when we've seen other people make that leap, um, they never go back because they, again, find the convenience and the ease and the variety there significantly better than um, they did, if you will, in the physical branch channel. But you'll see pockets, as I alluded to earlier, I have no doubt, um, with Smart Investor, where, you know, people are seeing opportunity in this crisis, those with means to potentially sort of get, get into an investment position that would... Um, make them, uh, you know, give them an opportunity to earn significant better returns through time than they would have otherwise. So those, I think that will also lead to significant changes in behavior. The thing in the middle for me that's going to be really interesting is this cutback in spending is psychologically, you have to imagine that outside the people who have means today and are therefore being opportunistic about long-term opportunities, the general population, I suspect, will come out of this crisis a lot more cautious than they did going in. And people will, I suspect, you'll, you may see sort of significant changes in savings rates broadly across the economy and potentially, you know, as a consequence of that sort of borrowing rates. Um, but we got a lot of time to play through, I think, before we're able to call any of that with any certainty. A slightly more philosophical question. Do you think that this crisis might help clarify the banking sector's social purpose in some senses? Again, it certainly gives the opportunity for us as an organization and other um, financial services organizations to do exactly that. 
um, for reasons I alluded to earlier, I think coming out of the financial crisis, there was a lot of animosity around the industry from the perspective of, um, you know, the, the, the taxpayer had to bail the industry out broadly. Um, whereas here, the, 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 the sector has the opportunity in effect to sort of bail the economy out if it does its job in most people's eyes properly. Um, and so we're going to have to, I think, as an organization and an industry, lean into that opportunity and, and make it real. Um, but it's going to require difficult choices because clearly the, the, the main role of the banking sector, the reason why we're regulated in the way we are, the reason why we have the capital and liquidity restrictions that we do, all of which have been heightened significantly post the financial crisis, is to make sure that we have the stability to, to do that but do it for the long term rather than um, over the short term. And again, I don't think anybody's got a crystal ball yet to be able to see exactly how this healthcare crisis is going to transform into an economic crisis, but we're all anticipating it will in some way. And how deeply that runs and for however long, um, you know, that, that you could easily imagine that starting to test some players in, in the sector's ability to continue to play their social role. So those organizations that are maybe a bit more diversified and start from a stronger position, They've got a significant opportunity not just to weather the crisis, but use it as a way of really signaling sort of the fact that they are strong, but also here um, to support not just their customers and clients, but broader society. And and I'm hopeful that, you know, through that, um, Barclays will certainly be one of the stronger banks and be able to do that um, very demonstrably. But we've got a lot of work to do in the meantime, just again, again given some of the early stage operational constraints that we've got to overcome to make sure that we've got the capacity, not just in capital and liquidity terms, but in human terms, to be able to do that at the scale that our customers and clients are going to need. What one thing keeps you up at night? I generally sleep pretty okay. Um, but what's on my mind, I guess, most evenings, even uh, notwithstanding the fact that I'm asleep, is, is two things, really. I think, one, have we done enough or are we doing enough in the spirit of your prior question? It's always on my mind to test whether or not we're anticipating and um, reacting at the speed and at the scale that our customers, clients, and the broader economy need. Um, and that's not an easy judgment to get right because of it, maybe to your earlier question, there's lots of things we can see and hear and finding um, the truth, if you will, or the signal, as you put it, in the noise there, and then responding to that rather than sort of overreacting to the noise uh, is definitely something that's um, been on my mind since this crisis hit. And then, two, a little bit to the point that I made earlier, sort of trying to look beyond the current urgent stuff. Um, so are we being – do we have enough foresight in our consideration about what we need to do next so that we're getting prepared for that so that when the next wave of development related to this arrives, we, we are as prepared for it as we can, rather than, again, maybe getting a little bit surprised and, and caught off guard. So that's um, that's something that's uh, very much on my mind, and I see, you know, as a responsibility that's deeply uh, held by me and my role to, to make sure that I'm spending the right time sort of trying to focus on that. And Matt, what makes you most proud in terms of how our colleagues and the wider business has responded? One of the things that in my 15 years at Barclays has been a common refrain, because um, we've unfortunately been a part of, you know, crises uh, a number of times over the period of time that I've been here. I'm, I'm hopeful that I'm not a causal factor in terms of creating them, but <laughs> anyway, um, is, you know, people like to say, and I think it's true, that Barclays is at its best in a crisis. And, and I think that's certainly proven true in the first three odd weeks of this crisis. You, you get a incredible sense of common purpose across an incredibly diverse group of colleagues 
and everybody just mucks in to do what needs to get done in order to be able to help deliver what we need for customers and clients. And that, that sense of social purpose, I think, becomes right to the fore and then defines what everybody's role is. And then people sort of lose sight of this sort of little P politics that might otherwise govern an organization as big and complex as ours. And that, again, it's, I think, happened in spades here. And the flexibility, the sort of sense of commitment and the sense of pride and and care that people have brought to everything that they're doing has just uh, astonished me and uh, made me feel incredibly humble and proud. Um, back to my to your earlier question about what keeps me up at night about the forward-looking things is, you know, what's on my mind is how do we freeze-frame that so that we don't need a crisis to cause that to happen? Um, and I certainly hear from colleagues, you know, a, a sense of desire, commitment, and again, hope that um, we, we can all sort of reflect on sort of what's allowed us to feel like we can work the way we are right now and then just keep that sense um, no matter how long this crisis goes on and, and then well beyond it because I think it will certainly help the organization live its purpose more strongly and also help us competitively differentiate ourselves far better than we would if we didn't do that. Yes, so bottle it and use that capability and approach every day if, if we can. So turning to you, Will, you and I were talking the other day about the differences we're seeing in how various countries are, are tackling this crisis. Can we say anything about the characteristics of countries that seem to be managing the outbreak well so far? I see plenty of commentators on either side of the authoritarian versus democratic debate here. It's a really complicated question, as, as I'm sure you um, know, and still very early, um, early days. But nonetheless, I, I, you know, I think the first thing we probably want to do is, is we probably want to tune out the arguments about certain regime types uh, being better equipped than others. Um, it has been pointed out that authoritarian uh, regimes have historically had problems uh, with getting information from the front line, so to speak, to the decision makers or maker. Um, and this, of course, can be a hindrance in these kinds of circumstances. But that's just a small uh, uh, part of it, I suspect. You know, one of the things that people have, you know, academics and so on have pointed out is that state capacity, um, i.e. the size and competency of your bureaucracy, um, has been a sort of commonly identified um, factor in terms of your success or the quality of the response. Um, so Korea and Taiwan, two countries so far being held up as the sort of model of how to respond, um, do also have large and sort of highly competent technocratic, technocratic capabilities. Uh, and importantly, I think, Relative to many um, many other countries around the world, these countries score highly on whether their respective populations trust uh, these public institutions. Now, instinctively, that could be that factor could be important in explaining uh, kind of public compliance with official edicts in these circumstances. But I think the thing is that there are just so many other factors to put in there. Uh, you know. For instance, countries like the US um, and UK, where a lot of the economy is um, uh, is, is is geared towards uh, services and, and more specifically kind of social interaction, uh, services based on social interaction, um, they're obviously through no particular fault of their own more economically vulnerable in these circumstances. Uh, alongside that, there's things like the age profile of your population, as well as the uh, prevalence of certain types of kind of pre-existing morbidity. Uh, they're also important also uh, to take into consideration, but also think about uh, kind of other structural factors. So in the US, um, large chunks of the workforce are being laid off at the moment. Um, you know, it's in the headlines a lot. Um, and there's some really kind of, you know, eye-watering numbers. Uh, now, the aim is, in terms of sort of the social safety net, that these citizens are caught by the unemployment insurance system. Now, in France, on the other hand, 
um, the authorities are handling the same problem quite differently. So there and in other European countries, the UK included, uh, the authorities are trying to sort of persuade companies uh, not to make money of these employees redundant, but just keep them on the books, um, but keep on. But the authorities are providing the businesses with the incentive, incentives via subsidies uh, to keep paying these wages for a limited period. Now, how will these two modes of dealing with the same problem compare when all is said and done? Um, you know, the US way of managing um, their economy and the workforce, you know, the way they manage their workforce is very much part of this. Their way of organizing their economy has long been praised for the kind of flexibility and dynamism that it tends to confer. However, in this situation, could that dynamism come at a price? Will the employees feel very differently about their respective employers uh, in this two, in these two countries in the years ahead because of this? I think, you know, the point for us is that this is going to be fertile ground for kind of pub political economists and social scientists, pub social scientists for, for many years to come, you would think. But I guess I, my point would be that we should be, uh, you know, we should be very wary of uh, sort of pat answers to this question uh, and those that would offer them. Well, how have the investment teams thinking on the range of probable outcomes evolved over the last few days and weeks? Are we still positioned in our shorter term portfolio for better times ahead, even as perhaps the worst for the economy is still likely ahead of us? Yeah, it's a, it's a question we get a lot at the moment, uh, Nikki, understandably. And, and I think, you know, A, there has been a lot of information in this last month. So, you know, kind of one of our jobs is uh, one of the team's jobs is uh, kind of painstakingly sifting through all of this to see uh, what actually changes, what new information changes our assessment uh, of the range of probable outcomes that lie ahead. I think, you know, this is a very kind of short summary. But I think, you know, if you look at you know, the short term economic effects of containment, um, I think we can certainly say that they are worse than we initially guessed at. But on the flip side, the response from the world's central banks and governments has been sort of correspondingly vigorous and, uh, and substantial. From the out perspective of the outbreak itself, um, we now know with increasing confidence that various degrees of containment can work to slow uh, and even stop the spread. Uh, and we know from Asia's kind of nervous return to work that huge resources are needed uh, in order to keep it that way. Uh, and even then, in the case of Singapore, for example, the risk of secondary outbreaks uh, is still um, very much present. But I think this is, um, there's a lot more to it, obviously, um, but our hunch remains that the most likely six to 12 month uh, uh, scenarios um, is that, you know, with a bit of help from uh, uh, from some treatments, potentially, perhaps, uh, uh, such as remdesivir that sort of received that sort of preliminary successful test uh, last week, uh, alongside beefed up testing and um, and, and uh, contract tracing capabilities, uh, the world economy uh, should rebound towards the end of this year. Now, there are risks to that view, of course, um, both on the upside and on the downside. Uh, but our, um, our, our, our sort of uh, our hunch remains, our sense remains that the market is still assigning too large a likelihood to the so-called left tail risks, uh, the depressions and other kind of economic nasties, uh, real, relative or more longer lasting economic nasties, uh, relative to a more balanced assessment of the full range of potential outcomes. Now, admittedly, um, you've already seen a sharp rally in stocks and risky assets such as credit in the last couple of weeks. Uh, so that story of exaggerated demand downside risks is a bit less acute today than it was a couple of weeks back, uh, but there's still opportunity 
opportunity uh, in our opinion and we've been adding to such risky assets as uh, such as stocks uh, shares and sort of credit uh, this last month uh, we were lucky enough to come into this crisis with a big store of cash that we've built up uh, for precisely this purpose um, in portfolios over the preceding six months uh, and we're actually already uh, uh, we're, we're sort of we're already uh, using that um, uh, we were, were a bit lower the, on equities than usual as we pointed out before so we've used this opportunity to deploy a good a good deal of that cash uh, to hopefully good effect. Will, I hear you and the investment team talk quite a bit about the prospects for innovation and productivity improvements being the driver for medium-term returns from diversified portfolios and, and funds. I have, I guess, two parts to my question. The first, how do you really know that the forces of innovation are not being materially altered by this current crisis and the lockdown? And secondly, and I guess more importantly, how do we translate someone inventing something amazing, say, in their garage in Silicon Valley, really going to change the value of my diversified portfolio or fund? Yeah, it's, it's a really important um, important question and one that we get a lot, Nikki. I think you know, on the first bit, on the productivity point, there is loads to go into this, obviously, and there have been books and books written on this subject. So I, I, I am oversimplifying to it to a great degree. But for me, um, I think the most important point and at the center of the innovation equation, the center of the productivity equation is us, human beings. Now, the slightly counterintuitive fact of the last couple of centuries is that the more of us humans uh, there have been uh, and, uh, on, on the planet, the better life has got for our species in aggregate, as measured by you know, everything from infant mortality, all kinds of welfare statistics. Now, in previous centuries, our species has kind of relied quite quite a lot on the kind of lucky few who had access to education, influence, and so on to kind of generate this innovation and this productive um, kind of progress. Um, and quite a lot of that productive progress was progress was really only aimed at the top uh, top one or two percent anyway. Now, if we assume uh, that intelligence uh, is evenly distributed, then we know, or we should know, that uh, in the bottom billion people in terms of income category, there will be, or should be, a, a sort of a million people, roughly a million people of genius level IQ. So if you think about it, for long periods of time uh, on, on, the, on our history on this planet, we've been wasting um, a sort of precious resource um, by not being able to sort of give it access, give that resource access to education and better, better sort of life opportunities. However, this is starting to change so what you've seen is in the last 30 or so years you've seen you know well-documented jaw-dropping declines um, in uh, in global poverty um, global levels of absolute uh, absolute poverty now that has also come with ever widening access um, to educational opportunity there's further to go there's no doubt about that but what you're starting our sort of bet is that these kind of these com combined factors uh, may start to help to really allow humankind to make better use uh, of humankind, of the resources that um, uh, that we have, uh, uh, that, that, are, that are gifted to us. Now, if you combine all this with the fact that um, with the arrival of sort of iPhones in 2007 and iPads in 2010, I think, and all of their kind of competitive equivalents, competitor equivalents, you have now put um, the means of production into about half the world's hands. Uh, but it seems um, to me anyway, I'm necessarily pessimistic to assume that nothing at all will emerge out of all of that, you know, that incredible cocktail of factors. There are loads more points to make here, but, I, you know, the, the time is limited and I don't think we've sort of, you know, 
we'll do another podcast on it, let's say. But I think on your second point, so let's just assume that productivity is going to continue and the last couple of centuries is not an aberration um, that, you know, that that, that, that sort of uh, mankind's, humankind's sort of endless uh, inventiveness and restlessness uh, will, uh, will continue to drive that forward. How does it then turn into, how does it then become, um, you know, something that uh, is investable or how, how does it affect my portfolio uh, returns? Very directly, actually, um, because productivity growth is the main factor behind that ever larger global economy that we see. Now, to give you a sort of idea about how that sort of ever larger, even through the last, um, you know, 10, 15 years, which has been a period when really people have, you know, economists have been wondering about the future of productivity growth and really uh, challenging the future of growth itself. Now, even during that period, if you take the peak uh, at the last economic cycle in 2007, so right as we're gazing over over the precipice into the uh, into the great financial um, uh, crisis, the world economy is around the third larger since that period uh, to uh, to the beginning of this year. And if you look at it uh, in per capita terms, so per person uh, output is about 20% larger. So that per person um, output story tells you how much productivity has uh, contributed to that um, uh, to that larger economy. Now. That growing size of the world economy, what it does is it provides an ever larger playground for the world's companies to operate in. Uh, so that means more revenues, uh, more profits, more earnings and dividends. And those latter two, they're what accrue uh, to shareholders uh, and then interest payments, obviously, to uh, you know th those uh, those portfolios, which are lending companies and governments uh, some of those uh, some of that money. So that is really how a bigger world economy um, translates almost directly into um you know larger investment or or, or, or uh, growth in your uh, in the value of your investments and matt does that bring up any further thoughts from you and nikki if i may just as one closing thought that just to pick yep. up on will's thoughts there you know ben franklin was i think famous for saying necessity is the mother of invention and i i think you know one of the things that's difficult to predict but you can certainly expect from this is that there's going to be a lot of people out of necessity sort of um, either because they're bored at home or because they've lost a job that are going to be thinking hard about some form of entrepreneurial endeavor. So I can't help but imagine that in the next 6 to 12 to 18 months, you're going to see the fruits of that sort of come to fruition. And I think that's going to be pretty amazing sort of silver lining that, you know, like any crisis, will come out of it. And of course, we're seeing even um, use of things like 3D printers being um, being used for real innovative purposes, like creating moss and visors um, and other bits of essential protective gear, um, even creating breathing aids to um, to to help patients with coronavirus before resorting to scarce ventilators. Innovation seems to be happening quicker than ever, um, even as we're in lockdown. I found out uh, our business oh, bank yeah. is supporting through uh, the Sybil scheme, who was a traditional retailer of um, plants and other goods uh, sold on site. And three weeks ago, he was desperate because he felt like his business was going to collapse. And he's now doing more online sales than he ever has before. And in fact, did more revenue in the last 10 days than he would in a normal week. And he's now actively reinventing his business as a digital-only business, and that's just in three weeks. So you just have to imagine that there's going to be a lot of people, if they react in the right way, they're going to find ways to reinvent themselves and reinvent their careers as a consequence. Thanks very much for joining us, Matt, and, and Will as well. Thank you to our listeners for spending your time with us. More Word on the Street next week. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.